Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Toronto's top doctor warns of a new pandemic, even though we haven't gotten rid of the old one yet, how the Canadian government has failed to deport a former Nazi and compelled speech in Canadian law. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show, February 9th, 2021. You're listening to The Andrew Lawton Show on True North as we are approaching year two of our two weeks to flatten the curve. Yes, it was uh, first flatten the curve, plank the curve, bend the curve, do whatever you want to the curve. And then it became, okay, well, you know, when we've got a vaccine and now it is, as we talked about last week, the lockdown that never ends. Yes, it goes on and on, my friends. Haven't heard that song in a while, but you'll be hearing a lot of it in the days, weeks, months to come. Here's the thing that I find fascinating. Just as we're starting to get to the point that we are getting back into normal life and the restrictions are coming to a little bit of an easing point in Ontario and Quebec, Alberta as well, BC also, which has had more lax restrictions and generally speaking has seen a a very good management of the case counts, which have been on the decline even without draconian lockdowns, Those four provinces represent 80% of the population of this country. I think it's 81% if I'm being technical, but 80% at least of the province's population or the the country's population. And in other provinces that are more sparsely populated, they've got relatively low numbers of cases in general. But let's just focus on Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, and British Columbia, the most densely populated and the most populous in the country. They are finding that the levels of COVID-19 cases are acceptable enough that they can start to gradually, just ever so slightly, bring down their restrictions. Do I think they could do more? Sure. But that's what they're doing. At the same time, at the federal level, we have travel being made all but illegal. They can't officially outlaw it, but they can make it so difficult for people to come back into the country that they better not think about leaving the country. And the reason for this is the variant. This is what we're told, the variants, the South African variant, the Brazil variant, the United Kingdom variant, all of these different variants that to lawmakers are plunging us right back into where they were circa February, March of 2020, which is, well, we don't know what we're dealing with, so we've got to err on the side of caution. The problem with erring on the side of the caution is that we've had to look at a lot more errors than we've had to see caution. And that's where I am on this now. I think, yes, we need to take this seriously. Variants are, by their nature, variables. The South African example is one where South African variant is the dominant variant in the nation of, well, South Africa. So the South African government was finding in a small trial that, eh, you know, that AstraZeneca v- uh, vaccine that we were rolling out isn't really protecting as much against this. So let's halt it while we investigate further. We have in Ontario, someone from the modeling table suggesting that in Ontario's case, the UK variant will be the dominant strain within four to six weeks. Now that may sound bad, but remember that these are the same modelers who, as my colleague Anthony Fury pointed out, said that by next week we'd see 20,000 cases a day. 20,000 cases a day is what the Ontario modeling desk predicted the province would see by mid-February. They made this prediction in January 
which as Anthony pointed out, was actually when things started to peak. So they were looking and saying, all right, it's going to be awful. It's going to be terrible. We're already in lockdown. But even so, 20,000 cases, that's where we're headed. And it went the opposite direction and has continued to go in that direction, even in spite of the almighty modeling. So the modeling has been consistently wrong. And I'm very glad about that. I'm very glad that we have not in reality seen such extreme examples of what's happening as the modeling has predicted and projected. But it also makes me a lot more skeptical of the variant fear, which in a lot of cases seems to exist at least in part so the governments can use the looming unknown as justification to continue to impose major restrictions. The fact is that all three of these major variants are, have already been found in Canada. So the idea of locking down travel to avoid influx of variants, I mean, that ship sailed. That's already done. And as we saw with COVID 1.0, you can't, once it's already in, do much with the border. If you're going to do a border measure, you have to do it before these things are in the country, not after. The reason I bring this up is because right now we are seeing a very mixed messaging. In some senses, provinces are saying, yeah, you know what, we've gotten this under control, we've learned to live about it. And even in Ontario, is Ontario's amending its very strict lockdown to say that, all right, we think retail can now open even under lockdown at limited capacity. Well, they should have known that months ago. They should have known that when they imposed the lockdown, knowing that retail was not and never has been the problem, just as international travel is not the problem. So what's the point of closing down the borders, of putting people into government hotels, of imposing the quarantine and multiple tests, when all of these really do the same thing? I mean, even Patty Haidu had conceded a couple of weeks back that the 14-day quarantine is still the number one measure to make sure that someone doesn't spread the virus if they come into the country. If you're going to quarantine for 14 days anyway, why do you need to go to a hotel? Why do you need to do a test on arrival? What, what good is the test if you're going to have to sit in your home for 14 days as it is? If everyone has to quarantine, having multiple tests is not adding anything. It's just adding theatrics of layers rather than genuine, more, genuinely more measures. So the variant fear, which again, we should pay attention, we should look, we should observe, we should measure. But we should not go back into this, oh, we don't know what's going on, we don't know, so we have to just lock down everything, shut down everything, which seems to be the direction the federal government is trying to push people. And interestingly enough, it was on Monday that the Ontario government announced it would be gradually moving into its reopening plan, moving back to the color-coded layers of shutdown that they had prior to everyone going into, you know, max lockdown mode. And Eileen Davila, Dr. Eileen Davila, who's the chief medical officer in Toronto, uh, has actually on the same day come out against it. She said the time is not now. Now, she's been a notoriously lockdown happy public health advisor, even by Canadian public health advisor standards. But she said something that I thought was very concerning. She said there is a transition underway to a new pandemic. She said, I understand the value of preparing for the time we can lift restrictions from a public health perspective in Toronto. That time is not now. But a new pandemic. Now, most people still didn't know the first one had ended because it never did, but now we already have a new pandemic. Instead of just the same pandemic that we were already in, it's a new one now. So we hit the reset, we go through the same process all over again. If you thought you were getting back to work, getting back to school, getting back to travel, getting back to your uh, old life, well, no, you're not doing that because now we're in a new pandemic. 
You know, we were talking last week about the new normal and the old normal. Well, now it's just the new pandemic or the old pandemic. There's no no pandemic, just new or old. And right now we're in that overlap period where we get the restrictions for both because you know what? We have to flatten this, this curve now. Just, just as we were still flattening the last curve, now we have a new curve to flatten. And there, there's been a profoundly dehumanizing effect to some of these measures, particularly the government detention facilities, which is really the only thing you can call them, these hotels that are being converted to be these massive quarantine facilities. Now, interestingly enough, there was this one hotel that I was supposed to be staying at, I think last month or two weeks ago in Calgary, and I I got an email from the hotel saying, we have to cancel your reservation because we are uh, closing due to COVID. And at first I was thinking this was just such a, a terrible thing that was happening, that hotel have had to just close down altogether. And then I realized later on that this hotel had actually gotten the sweetheart government contract to be a quarantine facility. So it wasn't that they just couldn't manage. It was that they were managing so well because the government was loading them up with people who were being uh, securely detained at the Calgary airport. And there was this CBC story that uh, did a glimpse, a glimpse at the COVID-19 isolation hotel with travelers who had been detained there sharing pictures of their journey. And they were given just absolutely terrible looking food. Uh, I'm a big guy, so I eat a lot. This guy, though, looks a lot fitter than I am. And he says that the meals were kid-sized with no meals after 6 p.m., no room service available. The vending machines only sell snacks. You're allowed out of your room for 15 minutes a day. Even prison inmates get more time in the yard than you get if you're in a Calgary COVID hotel. And he didn't have COVID, by the way. He had done a rapid test, which the government didn't accept because he needed to have a PCR test. And that was that. That was what got him uh, relegated to this hotel in Calgary. And uh, you have just a very sterile looking environment here. And I feel bad for people that are like this. Now, I mean, I'm glad that the government has taken so long to get its more recent hotel detention announcement together so people were able to kind of sneak into the country under the radar because the government hasn't been able to get these things up and running, to which I say, well, you know, there's a a slight benefit in the glacial pace at which the bureaucracy moves in that sense, at least. But this is insane, and the Canadian Constitution Foundation has launched a movement no to quarantine prison hotels. They're signing a petition and asking people to tell stories of how these measures will hurt them. And listen, I'm not one of these, you know, eat the rich, tax the rich, destroy the 1% types. But it is funny that if you have enough money, these things don't really matter. If you have enough money, the 2000 bucks to hang out at a government hotel isn't a big deal. Spending money on all the tests that you have to do, not really a big deal. The average people that want to get away, maybe they want to visit family, they're going to be safe, they're going to follow all the restrictions, they're going to quarantine. Those people are now effectively banned from travel by default without the government actually saying you are not allowed to do this because the government's made it so prohibitive. And this is why people need to say no. If on one hand, we have things moving in a good enough direction, that provinces that have been very happy to lock us down are starting to ease up on that, then surely we could say that we don't need this ban on going to sunny destinations, which the government has been effectively trying to do. I mean, flights to the Caribbean and to Mexico are banned until the end of April because the government got airlines to agree to this. And the airlines are playing ball because they don't want to anger the government that they might be petitioning for bailout money or, in fact, 
fact, are probably petitioning for bail money. And this is where we are. So the government is, again, turning its back on the so-called evidence-based decision-making that they claimed would be the very cornerstone of their approach to policy. And Canadians are left in the lurch. We'll be back in just a couple of moments with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Something as serious as being involved with the Nazis, being involved with a Nazi killing unit, you'd think would warrant swift action from a government. But in Canada, it has been anything but. The Canadian legal system has been working for about 25 years now to deport Helmut Oberlander, now 96, who in his younger years, in the time of the Holocaust and World War II, was a translator in a Nazi killing squad. He made a life for himself in Canada as a developer in the Waterloo area. He did not disclose his involvement with the Nazis when he came here, which is really the crux of the government's uh, thrust to try to get him out of Canada. But this has become mired in multiple layers of bureaucracy. And as I said, 25 years after the process was initiated, he's still here. This week, yet another delay as the can was kicked a bit further down the road for a hearing that was supposed to happen. But really underscoring this beyond all the legal arguments is a fundamental question about whether there is a statute of limitations on the forms of crimes in which the Nazis were complicit and those involved with them. Joining me on the line is Shimon Koffler Fogel, who's the president and CEO of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Shimon, thank you so much for your time today. Andrew, it's great to be with you again. One of the biggest defenses we've seen of Helmut Oberlander from people is that, well, you know, so much time has passed and he wasn't personally involved and he's made a life for himself. And and as he gets older and older, uh, he just starts to look like this frail man and and people don't want to throw the book at him, so to speak. Why is it so important in your view to continue to prosecute and advocate for justice on these matters? Well, Andrew, as, as you pointed out, um, this didn't begin in 2021. This began 26 years ago uh, when he was less frail and less old. Uh, and uh, I think the the real core is, is uh, based in your introduction, about the question of statute of limitations. Um, is there a time after which accountability and responsibility for crimes of the proportion uh, that the Nazis committed expire. Uh, And our view would be, for multiple reasons, no. Uh, Number one, uh, there's a need for justice. Uh, There's a need for accountability. And Oberlander, uh, however he might want to portray his involvement with the Nazis, was actively involved in units that actually went from location to location, rounding up Jews, Roma, uh, and other undesirables, uh, and brutally massacred all of them. Uh, So there has to be accountability for that. But it goes beyond that, because Oberlander also represents a challenge to our whole refugee and immigration policy. We have a set of criteria and laws that govern how people come into Canada, which after all is a refugee intake country. If those are going to be breached, it undermines the credibility of the whole system. And it's under enough strain that we should be able to say with some confidence that the laws are applied evenly, consistently, and across the board. But I would suggest, Andrew, that there's a more compelling reason than either of the ones that I've presented so far. 
We now live in a time when populism uh, and nationalism has regained a certain uh, uh, entrenchment within society, well beyond Canada, but it certainly includes Canada. And we have a compelling responsibility to remind citizens, especially those who grew up and were born long after the Holocaust, of what potential there is for evil uh, and for the kind of destruction that's associated with the Nazi regime. And if we give a pass to people like Oberlander, we're essentially diminishing and whitewashing uh, the seriousness of what took place. And we can't then apply the lesson of never again. We are so desperate to build a better society, a more inclusive society. But if we allow in that inclusion those who uh, really were the poster children for the exact opposite, then we're really undermining our own efforts. When you say poster children, I, I feel there's an important dialogue here because, again, one of the defenses that I, I would appreciate your analysis of or your response to is when people use those terms, just a translator. Well, he, he wasn't personally the one killing. That distinction, in your view, is relatively irrelevant given the scope of evil the Nazis committed, correct? Absolutely, Andrew. Uh, I think that everybody um, has the opportunity to do what's right or to acquiesce to what's wrong. Uh, a 17-year-old conscript is an adult, uh, is somebody who's able to distinguish between what's morally acceptable and what is reprehensible. Uh, if we had had people willing to stand up and push back against the dictate of the Nazis, then we would have had a very different outcome to World War II. So I think that you can't skirt accountability and responsibility for the personal decisions that you make. And it's not as if he was a translator for a weekend when they were in a particular uh, venue. He was with the group, he was attached to it, he continued uh, to operate with them and for them, and in essence was an enabler of the kind of murder and atrocity that, that those groups yeah, and one of the things I should probably point out, I had the great privilege of accompanying a delegation from your organization, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, to Israel back in 2015 and visit Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Museum, and speak with a number of the people who have devoted their lives to studying and preserving this horrific chapter in history. And one of the things that came up, and I've seen, especially in talking to younger Jewish people, is how the more time that passes between the Holocaust and now, the more abstract it becomes, and the fewer living survivors of it, uh, people who have survived the Holocaust but have succumbed to old age, the harder it is to have that living memory. And, and in a lot of cases, Holocaust indifference is a big problem. And you, you raised an important point there when you said about never again. People need to remember that, yes, this is not something that just has fizzled out to history. I, th I think you're so right, Andrew. Um, uh, look, when we try to undertake Holocaust education, for example, in the public school system here in Canada, we struggle to find ways to make it relatable um, to kids today who have no terms of reference, who don't really have any clue as to uh, what the Holocaust was, how it came about, and how it could have been prevented. 
and as we struggle as a society, and we've had a pretty intense year, in addition to COVID, there was, there was um, so much attention, and rightly so, uh, to issues of racism and discrimination, uh, some of it really built into the very fabric of our society. We have no possibility of addressing those in a constructive way if we don't have an appreciation for what things could have been and what things were. So when we look at the Uyghur in China, or we look at what's happening in Burma, or we look even to places like uh, Eastern Europe and the Ukraine, we have to connect the dots between what was and what could be. And if we are dismissive of the past, if we simply whitewash people like Oberlander, then really we're condemning ourselves uh, to repeating uh, those terrible events and experiences of the past. One thing that I, I would point out here to go back to the Oberlander case is that the government has tried, and, and I don't know if there are other tools that the government could have employed that would have expedited this. A lot of the issues have been in the courts and in some of the legal mechanisms there, and this has spanned liberal and conservative governments because of how long it's gone on. You know, if this country is not ultimately successful in deporting Helmut Oberlander, it really does show, I think, a profound lack of commitment in some way. I don't know the right word, but but a lack of ability to see this through and understand the severity of it. I mean, if this had happened, for example, with someone whose role were less ambiguous or, or perceived as less ambiguous, I can't imagine that they would have allowed this to go on for 26 years. So it, it does strike me as very odd that this has not been successful. And this may well be, and in fact, it probably will be the last such case ever in Canada and one of the last in the world. It's important to get it right. So I think that's absolutely spot on, Andrew. Um, I think one of the questions that has been triggered or prompted uh, by this experience over 26 years. And you're quite right, um, successive Canadian governments uh, have endeavored, uh, I think there were four definitive decisions taken uh, to strip him of his Canadian citizenship and deport him to Germany uh, where he would stand trial. Um, it, it prompts the question, um, how is our independent judiciary managing things in a way that simply makes sense? Um, if the judiciary can be abused in the way that Oberlander's legal team has done it for 26 years, it begs the question, are we doing something wrong in terms of how we're organizing the, uh, the legal process? Uh, ensuring justice for the target of a particular prosecution has to be balanced by ensuring justice for the victim's of the alleged um, uh, crime. Uh, and I think that in this case, it is clear uh, that the uh, 15 or 20,000 survivors living here in Canada now, observing what's happening with Oberlander, are certainly bitterly asking themselves, where is the justice for me and the family that I lost? Yeah, and I, one point I would raise here is that it seems like for the Oberlander legal team, the delay is the win. I mean, the guy's 96. Let's be real. The, the delay is the win. They don't need a, a court to declare them the victors. They just need to drag it out until such a point that he's reached his natural end. I, I, I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, they're not looking for vindication. Um, they're looking just to allow him to remain in place and be comfortable for the rest of his days. 
uh, and thereby uh, to Dodge having to be accountable for what he's done. We have to remember the Canadian piece is only a portion of this process. It's not as if he would be deported simply because uh, he um, misled immigration officials when he applied for Canadian citizenship. There's a court waiting to try him for war crimes. Uh, and for him not to be um, deported from Canada would mean that he never has to account for his decisions, for his actions, and his participation in the uh, in, in, in the Nazi killing machine. That's actually a tremendously valuable point. In a lot of cases, we view this as a deportation case, which is how it is legally, but it, it has a lot of the hallmarks of an extradition case as well, which I, I think that change in words has a, a very significant change in, in the perception of it. Shimon Koffler Fogel, President and CEO of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, thank you for your commitment to justice and accountability on this, Shimon. Andrew, it's always great to be with you. Just a, an, I mean, I, I can't stand bureaucracy, and I am also very keen on remembering the Holocaust and, and holding those uh, who were complicit in it to justice. So this case has been infuriating. And the fact that I've been covering this case for, I think, five or six years now, and every time there's a revival of the discussion, it has gone absolutely nowhere, which is, is just profoundly... I mean, the, the system is an injustice on top of the master of all injustices, which is the Holocaust itself. But this system continues to just drag its heels and, and not do anything. Unreal. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I want to read a headline for you. British Columbia's practice directions on preferred gender pronouns in court are problematic. Now, this was published in Canadian Lawyer, a magazine that deals with issues of relevance to the Canadian legal community, as the publication's title would suggest. And it sounds like if a court is putting in place a policy that affects lawyers, that perhaps different perspectives on those would be a good idea. I'm glad the magazine ran the article. Well, well, a few lawyers were not. An open letter was published calling out this as being problematic itself, despite the fact that it was calling out behavior that was problematic in another way. And what did the magazine do? Commit themselves to supporting diverse viewpoints? No, of course not. It's 2021. They yanked the article and put up in its place an apology saying that it did not reflect the views of Canadian lawyer magazine, Key Media, and its related entities. That's signed by Tim Wilbur, the editor-in-chief for Law of Canadian Lawyer magazine. Uh, D. Jared Brown is a lawyer. You may know him on Twitter as the litigation guy. And he was... Uh, very clear in, in pointing out this open letter calling for the article's withdrawal, all the names of lawyers that apparently don't support free speech. Jared, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So I want to, there, there's two aspects to this. There's the initial discussion about pronouns, which we'll get to in a moment. But I'd say the bigger issue now is that a magazine that you'd think would have differing perspectives, would have even dueling perspectives on key issues that are relevant to lawyers is now memory holing one side of the argument. Yeah, I mean, uh, Canadian Lawyer Magazine is traditionally a pretty moderate, uh, up the middle uh, publication. Um, what we see here, though, is that not only are they going to uh, to uh, fall victim to the mob in terms of the pressure to remove a particular article, but it would seem to me that they're not prepared to publish anything outside of what I would, would venture as a very uh, narrow, defined, and, and I would even say radical ideology. 
one of the things that I would point out is that the magazine does not have the final say on what Canadian lawyers think. But I'd say that industry publications have always been, I thought anyway, or should have always been the last bastion of being able to hash out what are uh, intra-industry battles and, and really discussions and debates that uh, lawyers could talk about because they're all operating from the same basis and on the same same wavelength, at least in some areas, you'd hope. And, and I, at the same time, I find that quite distressing because when you're talking about these things, what a bunch of the lawyers who signed that letter were saying is that, you know what, we're not allowed even us as professionals to have these discussions. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's uh, it's evidence of sort of the ideological capture that's happened in the legal profession. Um, the the profession itself is increasingly uh, um, becoming a monoculture, one that uh, that is subscribing to sort of one side of the uh, of the the, uh, the politics one side uh, or one particular ideology right now it happens to be a very leftist viewpoint on things and because of that ideological capture because the legal profession is inc increasingly becoming that monoculture um, it's shunning viewpoints that that are are independent or outside that bubble and so canadian lawyer magazine and what's just happened is is simply evidence of uh, of that that movement of that uh, I guess you'd say consolidation of viewpoints uh, in the legal profession so yeah and there's still a, an archived version of the now censored article that you can find online and uh, you know I've read through it after it, it ended up being yanked so I'm glad that version was still available and a lot of the arguments I mean maybe I'm just immune to these things that are supposedly cancelable offenses but a lot of the arguments uh, are you know perhaps disagreeable to some but we're not talking about unprofessional we're not talking about offensive we're talking about arguments that are grounded in a, a legal uh, basis and in, in a legal argument, arguments against uh, compelled speech, arguments against uh, the infringement on privacy rights, supporting judicial impartiality. I mean, these are all things that you shouldn't find controversial. No, no. If you read the article, and like you said, it's still available, uh, you know, out on the internet and out in the ether. Um, it's a pretty milquetoast approach to something that that is, uh, you know, a, a an interesting issue politically. Um, I don't think that there's anything in that article that 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 goes beyond the Paul, or or for that matter, goes beyond the law. It, it was a uh, one uh, woman of color's uh, perspective on on a dictate that came down for how the courts in BC are to operate, and and I think it was, you know, reasonably well considered. Uh, I, I'm not sure I agree with uh, everything that was presented. I think she could have gone further um, in enunciating the compelled speech argument. But given given the time and space constraints that you usually see in columns like that, I think I think it was fine. There was nothing offensive about it, unless of course you subscribe to a single sort of radical leftist ideology. Uh, at that point, you can't even have that debate. I mean, I'm sure many people who signed that joint letter, uh, and there were law firms as well that were were uh, in that letter. Um, uh, I'm not sure they they're even aware that there are more than one side to some of these arguments and some of these issues. Uh, I think what happened more than anything is that is that this particular uh, article uh, punctured their bubble. Uh, it, it punctured their safe space, and uh, and their only uh, uh, reaction uh, that they have in that instance is rather than engage with the arguments and deliver the counterpoint, uh, was to memorable it. 
Yeah, and and that was I found it interesting when I was just scrolling through to see if I knew any of the names. The lawyer who fought against uh, True North and I, uh, True North and me, in the Leaders Debates Commission case against the government was on there. So I mean, that's the only personal connection I have to anyone on this list as someone that was on the wrong side of another issue. But you you are very right when when you point out that. There's a risk here, and I saw a lot of articling students uh, that were uh, naming themselves as such that I'm looking at. I'm like, you're coming into the legal profession from a place of we should not be standing up for diverse perspectives. And that makes me very pessimistic about the future of the profession. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, the legal profession is not immune to what we see going on in wider society no. with, the, with the outlawing of certain viewpoints, particularly those that would be more, uh, I guess, centrist or right of center even. Um, but what was most shocking to me is that it wasn't simply a, a, a group of lawyers that signed that article, but they were lawyers from, from major law firms, Bay Street mm -hmm. law firms. Uh, and I guess... Uh, you know, I, I put that list up, that joint letter up. I did so because I think it's important that the public realize that uh, that the profession has been captured at its highest levels and, and that, you know, when their back is up against the wall, I'm not sure you can look to some of these law firms and some of these lawyers um, to sort of be the, uh, the, the bulwark against uh, the tyranny and oppression that, that the legal profession uh, used to be. Yeah, and I, I don't want to focus entirely on Canadian Lawyer Magazine because I feel that the point of the op-ed in question, even if, as you know, you might not agree entirely with what's being said, was an important issue. And, and this was a practice directive issued by the B.C. Supreme and Provincial Courts to lawyers that require parties and lawyers to state their preferred gender pronouns at the beginning of all court proceedings. And that's where, in the context that the author of the piece brings it up, there's a potential violation of privacy rights, there's a judicial impartiality issue, and there's a compelled speech. You now have to say something as part of this. We don't have this in Ontario, and, and you actually were instrumental in a group uh, to take over the Law Society of Ontario Board of Governors, basically, the benchers as they're known, uh, to try to put in a, a very a robust fight against compelled speech. But when you see something like this coming down the pipe, I mean, what's your response? Yeah, I mean, it's a sensitive issue, and, and what it's a deeper issue than what it appears to be on its face. It's positioned as one of of obviously respect for the individual litigants and participants in the judicial process. And, and I think we'd all acknowledge that, that there needs to be some modicum of, of respect. And also, I think that the courts uh, absolutely have the authority to sort of control their own process and those that appear mm -hmm. before them. The problem was, is that this is this was making uh, the issue of pronouns, uh, pronouncing an edict on a, what I would say is a highly political and I would even say controversial issue. And that is uh, this idea that the, the you know implementing I guess you could call it the social constructionist theory on gender. I mean, not everybody subscribes to that. Uh, and and when the court decides to take a position on those issues, um, highly political issues, then then it's right that we have this discussion, that we have this debate, and that it should and ought to play out in the pages of Canadian Lawyer Magazine. Um, as it stands right now, the court can uh, and will make directives as to how you address certain participants in the proceeding. The difference was, though, that this one, this directive requires that everyone walk into court and, and identify their gender identity uh, um, at the outset of the proceedings. And, and you know, as, as the article points out, you know, that's problematic on, on a variety of levels. And, and perhaps the court didn't consider that um, when it when it pronounced that edict, but um, yeah, I mean, 
Setting aside simply the compelled speech argument, uh, we should be able to have this discussion about whether or not the courts should be making these orders. And, and the article points out some interesting examples as to as to when uh, that could jeopardize the impartiality of the court. I mean, there's the instance that they mentioned the case over in the UK um, where a, a victim of rape uh, was directed to refer to uh, her attacker uh, by by female pronouns when in fact the attacker was a biological male. You can see where that would be an issue. It's almost as mm -hmm. if the court is prejudging the issue. Yeah, and that was when I first heard, before I even saw the magazine uh, essay, when I first heard of this directive, the concern that I had is what if the issue of pronouns or gender identity were central to the case? And I, I don't want to dwell on hypotheticals, but I could see a number of cases where, uh, and including one, by the way, in British Columbia, where forcing someone in the court proceeding to be referenced a certain way would actually get to what was in, in part the pith of the case itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's the most obvious example of where this would be an issue. Uh, um, and, and I mean, the, the, the courts already traditionally had the tool to deal with that. They are allowed to step in in the middle of or at the beginning of a proceeding and give a directive one way or the other. And, and, and we were trusting the bench to deal with the issues that come before them mm -hmm. uh, as they come. But now with a directive from on high, you're requiring all courts to start the proceeding in this way. And, and I mean, it's obvious why that's going to be an issue. Um, but more than that, like I said, it, it shows a lack of uh, confidence in, our, in, our, in the bench to be able to deal with these issues delicately and appropriately and respectfully as they arise. Yeah, and beyond that, going back to the yanking of this column, it, it shows an inability or an unwillingness for uh, people to entertain that, hey, when something like this is coming in the context of a, a social or political debate, you should be able to hash that out and, and not have one side just summarily censored by the other. Well, you would hope so. You would think that the law would be the last bastion of the uh, uh, of freedom of speech, freedom of conscience. Uh, you'd think that we would uh, uh, continue to uh, be that bulwark against uh, state encroachment on our rights. But unfortunately, like I said, the legal profession is not immune to what we see happening in wider society. And there is an increasingly illiberal, uh, I would almost say authoritarian uh, uh, perspective and, and it, it is happening within the law and it's happening at, as we just saw in that joint letter uh, across all levels of the profession and right up into the, the highest towers uh, in law firms. D. Jared Brown is a lawyer with Brown Litigation and also a bencher with the Law Society of Ontario. Jared, thanks so much for coming on today. Great chatting with you. Thanks for having me, Andrew. That was lawyer Jared Brown. And that does it for us for today's edition of The Andrew Lawton Show. But speaking of censorship, I got to put in a plug for a panel I'm hosting tomorrow evening, Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. It's presented by True North in partnership with Civitas Canada, a panel on big tech censorship called Purged. I'm going to be moderating it, and we've got a, an absolutely fantastic array of guests from Bruce Party to Kelly Jane Torrance of the New York Post to Robbie Suave of Reason Magazine, some great perspectives on big tech censorship and how we can combat it from the classical liberal perspective, the libertarian perspective, the conservative perspective. And if you're a True North Club member, you can actually submit questions ahead of time that we may read. And there's information available at tnc.news. So we'll see you tomorrow night. And with another episode of The Andrew Lawton Show, we'll see you Thursday. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.